Hi everyone, I'm Aviva Rumani, and this is KindredCast, our podcast featuring insights from dealmakers and thought leaders from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. KindredCast is a production of Kindred Media, powered by LionTree, the global merchant and investment bank. Today, we feature a webinar on the future of education, hosted by LionTree's public markets expert, Leslie Mallon. Her guests are Dan Rosenzweig, the president and CEO of Chegg, and Dr. Paul LeBlanc, the president of Southern New Hampshire University, who served as senior policy advisor to the undersecretary Ted Mitchell at the U.S. Department of Education. Chegg's nearly 3 million subscribers rent digital textbooks and receive tutoring and other student services, and Southern New Hampshire University is one of the largest non-for-profit providers of online education in the U.S., making this a very timely conversation on what the global pandemic has revealed about higher education and how existing and emerging digital services can best address students' needs going forward. Also, a reminder to sign up for our Kindred Media Daily Take a Break newsletter, where you'll find engaging content and the largest takes on the media space. The link to sign up is in our show notes. Hope you enjoy the show. Education advances from this moment in history and how it becomes fully digitized. And so I'm very pleased to have today with us Dan Rosenzweig, who's the president and CEO of Chegg. Dan is also on the board of Adobe, Rent the Runway, and Donors Choose, as well as a senior advisor for TPG Growth Ventures, Kleiner Perkins, and Bond Capital. has been a friend for a long time. And also Dr. Paul LeBlanc, the president of Southern New Hampshire University. Paul also served as senior policy advisor to Undersecretary Ted Mitchell at the U.S. Department of Education. And he has also recently given me two book recommendations, which if you're lucky, he'll share with you as well. And I will pass it along to my colleague, Leslie Mallon, who will lead a more formal introduction and the discussion today. And thank you all so much for joining us today for this series. Great. Thanks, Arie. Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks again for taking the time to join us today for our third Lion Tree Live virtual discussion. As Arie mentioned, today's discussion is on a very important topic, that being the education sector. And the spotlight has been shining on the education industry during this global pandemic, given that the only way that kids and adults can engage with education has been in some form a digital way. And it has been a pain point in some regard for many, given most institutions have not been prepared to interact with students in this fashion. But at the same time, there are some amazing companies with online educational courses and tools already available and which are well positioned to accelerate their growth and penetration as the industry enters the digital age. We at LionTree think the industry is set to inflect. So with that, I'm very pleased to be joined today by the uh, two individuals who REA had already just briefly introduced, but to give you a little bit more background and perspective, Dan joined Chegg about 10 years ago with the vision of transforming the then popular textbook rental service into a leading provider of digital learning services for high school and college students. Fast forward, Chegg now offers a suite of high quality, low cost, personalized and on-demand educational resources that help students maximize the return on their investment in education. A couple of stats. Chegg now has nearly 3 million Chegg service subscribers, which is up an accelerated 35% year over year. 
Over the past three years, revenue for Chegg has grown 27% on a compounded basis and adjusted EBITDA up an astonishing 82% compounded. And Dan, since you took the company public in 2013, the stock is up four and a half times versus the S&P up about 1.7 times over that same period. So Dan, please join us here. And Paul has been leading Southern New Hampshire University for 15 years, over which time he has grown the institution from 3,000 students to over 130,000 students, making it one of the country's largest nonprofit providers of online higher education in the country. The list of Paul's and Southern New Hampshire University's accolades are long, but I wanted to name a few here. Forbes magazine listed Paul as one of the 15 classroom revolutionaries and one of the most influential people in higher education. The university was ranked number 12 on Fast Company magazine's world's 50 most innovative companies list, and that was the only university included. And lastly, in 2018, Paul won a prestigious TIAA Institute Hesburgh Award for Leadership Excellence in Higher Education. So very impressive achievements. Thank you both for being with us today and for engaging in this discussion. Two quick things before we get started. This is for the audience. We love as much interaction as possible from the attendees. And some of you have already sent in questions, but please use the chat feature to submit questions along the way so we can try to address them. And lastly, as our mandatory compliance reminder, this is a public information only meeting. And as with all of Lion Tree events, it is also an off the record meeting. So with that, let's get started. I thought we could start by talking a bit about lessons learned and the market opportunity. But estimates have shown that more than 1.5 billion learners or over 90% of the global student population were at some point confined to homes during COVID and therefore were likely to have experienced some form of digital learning here. So what do you think were the greatest lessons learned for the education industry on the back of the pandemic? And in your view, why is the sector set to inflect? What is lacking with the existing educational system that can be enhanced with technology and digital solutions? So broad question to start. Maybe, Dan, if you want to kick us off. First of all, thank you, Lion Tree and Leslie and RA and team for having us. I hope Paul's biggest accolade is that he's also on the Chegg board. If any of you have seen Paul's commercial, I had not met Paul, but others, of course, have thought the world of him. He comes from technology background, believe it or not, in our industry. But when I saw his commercial, I said, I want that guy on the board because he's the only person talking to what the actual student base of America is. People misunderstand what the student base looks like. So I would say that Paul probably had a different experience because he's been set up day one to teach remotely, where most schools in this country were not. So it doesn't matter if you're a parent and you saw how challenging it was to watch your kids be educated at home where you had to do a lot of work. In college, very few, if any, were prepared for this or anything like this. In fact, they actively have a disdain for online education. And so they were not only not prepared, they were underprepared. And so a lot of them bailed. A lot of them tried to do Zoom things or other things, but they just bailed because they didn't want to or didn't know how to or weren't prepared to. And in a lot of ways, what it shows is the need for it, but you have to actually want to do it. 
and you actually have to be good at it. And so I think it'd probably be better for Paul to walk through what Southern New Hampshire does from day one, as opposed to what we're all experienced watching the 5,000 schools try to go online. So Paul? Yeah, happy to jump in. Thank you for the kind words, Dan. Well, as I'd say, there's sort of five key lessons already in the relatively short time that post-secondary has been moving through this. So one is greater fragility of the business models than most people thought. So even in our most prestigious schools are much more fragile than I think people widely understood, which is why you're seeing this enormous pressure to reopen in September. And I chair the American Council of Education. I can tell you that a lot of people have said they're going to open. No one has a credible plan for that. So we've announced we won't. I'm highly skeptical of the ability to reopen. Two, I think it's been a shock to many providers, so many institutions, that what students want to pay for, which is a signal to what they value most, is actually not the academic experience. It's the coming of age of living on a campus. So when you take the second piece away, I'm going to use a jobs to be done theory from Clay Christensen. They're like, nope, not willing to pay very much for this. My education is table stakes. I want it to be good. I want it to lead to a good job. As Dan would say, that's the number one priority. But it's a given in their minds. Like, if I know that, then I'm paying for all this other value. Third is that um, digital institutions are largely thriving, and most of residential higher ed is still an analog experience. So, like Dan, our lead flow is up 30% year over year. Western governors would tell you the same thing. Certainly the large online providers. And then I think a very harsh light has been shined on inequities within higher education. So our most marginalized students are at great, great risk right now and great risk when we don't open in the fall. And that's everything from how little social capital they have to access the technology, basic infrastructure pieces. Those are the big lessons that we're grappling with right now. And I would add that when you talk about the inequities, they're institutionalized like everything else in this country. For most of the people on this call, you may not recognize that here's what the average American student actually is. They're 25. They're not 18 to 22. They have jobs. So 40% of them work 30 hours a week or more while trying to attend school. 26% of them already have a child. The average age and demographic of an online learner, Paul, see if I'm right, is a 30-year-old woman with both a child and a job. The fact that education thinks that its role is still to bring you in from where you are to take four years off from your life suggests that the only people that can afford to take four years off from their life are wealthy. That's first of all. Second of all, if you graduate at all and 43% of people who go to college get no degree. Let's just be clear on that. No degree at all. But if you go, the actual graduation time is six years. So there's been no accountability. Prices have gone up every year. As Paul said, if you can afford to do that, you're valuing everything but the education. They're not valuing the education at school A more than school B, except for the top 25 schools. And even those schools What were their values when Harvard with $41 billion endowment and Stanford with a $26 billion endowment cut the salaries of the administration rather than tap into their endowments? What does that tell you? Not a great picture. But that's why our businesses are booming because what I admired so much about Paul and the reason I really went to go find him was we're both companies that are focused on the only constituents that should matter in the education system, which is the student. Everybody else has been focused on the institution or the administration or the professors. 
Right. Let's try to paint a picture of where the educational system is going, what the future will look like relative to today. And we actually had a couple of questions sent in before from attendees on this line within this area. Let's start by talking about the effectiveness of e-learning and how can online education better prepare the student population than the traditional classroom education Is e-learning more appropriate or effective for certain age groups or grades than others? How can you measure the success at the end of the day? We can start there. Paul? Yeah, I'll jump in. Online learning has been incredibly effective for adults because I'm going to keep using this jobs to be done language if you're familiar with it. Because the job that adults want, the typical 30-year-old, 80% of our students have credits from someplace else. They tried college 10 years before. Life got in the way. Something happened. They weren't ready. 86% are working, they're stuck economically. So their drivers, the job they want is get me a credential that unlocks an opportunity, get it to me at a price I can afford, give it to me in a way that's convenient because I'm juggling full-time job and kids. So I got to squeeze this hard thing in somehow and get me to the finish line as fast as possible. None of those priorities are priorities for a residential college student. So the mistake we have to make when we talk about e-learning and who's it appropriate for in higher education is that there is more than one higher education in America. And the job to be done at a residential campus is education and coming of age, all of this other stuff. And that stuff is analog. That's about who will I live with? All the listeners who have kids in college or have been recently going through this experience, if you go on a typical tour, there are a handful of questions about the academics. But they kind of look around and go, yeah, looks like higher ed. Like, I give you the benefit of the doubt. They may have a couple of questions about where do your graduates go. There's a sort of general sense of, yep, I don't even know what to ask, but this looks right. And then all the questions are about coming of age. Who will I live with? Do I like the looks of this place? Do I feel at home here? Can I make your JV varsity or your varsity field hockey team? Will I study abroad? Do you have volunteer opportunities? But it's all of this other stuff. So my 30-year-olds, they've had all the coming of age they can handle. So understand that when you are seeing these reports of young people saying, I hate online, it isn't as good, they're conflating a really pretty poorly designed, rapid, hastily put together online experience and how much they hate missing their campus experience. And that's the great push to go back for them. If you look at adults, they have a whole different set of things that are driving their definitions of success. Stand back away from the market question, and I would tell you that our ability to do quality online education far exceeds our ability today to do quality face-to-face. When a professor is hired, their students file in, they close the door. That's the last time I get to look inside that classroom till midterm grades or evaluations at the end of the semester, very problematic instruments. When we do online learning, we're monitoring every single section 24-7. We're doing predictive analytics on the students. We know when people have logged in. We're looking at the individual assignments. We can see and look at where students get into trouble. There's no comparison. If you tried to do that on a traditional campus, I would be hung in effigy. I can't even do that on my traditional campus, which is 3,000 or 4,000 students become grad students. So it's not a question of the ability to deliver quality. It's a question of what kind of programming and what kind of places. And then if you take a look at the new generation of young students coming to campus, if you want to focus on that, they're going to gravitate to Chegg because they're digital natives. They have no problem getting their learning support online. That's just a natural for them. But in terms of high-impact practices for even on campuses, if you look at the research, no one talks about life-changing learning in a classroom. They talk about how it changed your life to go study abroad in Florence, small-town New Hampshire kid, 
who's never even been to New York, now finds himself or herself in Italy, right? They talk about an internship that lit them up and they realize this is what I want to be. Like, this is where I found my career path. And they talk about faculty, but they don't talk about faculty standing in front of a classroom. They talk about the conversation in the faculty office where they were made to feel like they mattered to somebody who took an interest in them as a person. That's not happening in the classroom. That's happening outside the classroom. So we need a much more sophisticated dialogue around what counts for efficacy and quality in online learning. But this generation of students is ready. And Paul, if you add on to that, we've done research that we're going to publish shortly, which is 74% of all students said they're okay with online learning, except 70% said their professors sucked at it. And that was their biggest problem. But again, I think it's who you're programming for. We also learned of the inequities that 25% of students that were forced to study at home either had no broadband or had no computer, which became a massive issue. Most people may not understand that 10% of all college students in the U.S. go to the California Community College system. It's 2.25 million people do just that system alone at 115 schools, and now all of it was put online. The other thing is a fairness question, which is if a lot of people, if English is their second language and the ratio of college guidance counselors to student in the state of California alone is one to 1,000, we're talking about majority of kids are on their own. And what do they need when they're on their own? They need affordability. They need adaptability. They need the system to meet them at their academic level, not to assume that it's a homogenous group that have all had tutors before they came into college. And this is why Chegg has exploded. We have over 40 million questions asked and answered inside our database. You take a school like Brooklyn College, they have a 40% acceptance rate, but only 53% of their students graduate. So they don't even expect the students that they admit to graduate. This is part of the problem. What about what students are actually learning, like the relevancy of content? How do you expect that's going to change over time? What are you already seeing? Well, I can start by saying that we have said for 10 years now at the biggest education conference, you can go back and read these things. We said 80% of kids go to college for the primary purpose of trying to get a better job. And that the concept of four years before you get to get paid is ridiculous, given the fact that 95% of the time on a residential campus is spent outside the classroom. So there is a move towards learning to earn. It needs to be faster, it needs to be on demand, and the curriculum needs to be expanded. There's nothing wrong with most of the academic content, including liberal arts content, which I'm a big fan of, but it's incomplete if it doesn't have basic job skills. I don't care how smart you are or how great your critical thinking is. If you want to go into finance and you're not a 9 out of 10 on Excel, you ain't getting that job. Investors say to me all the time, I say, what's the number one skill that you want to hire? And they're like, critical thinking and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, so if they can't use Excel, you'll hire them. They're like, oh, no, no way. There needs to be an expansion of the curriculum. And that can all be done online. That's the movement that's going on. So I don't know, Paul, if you would add to that. Yeah, we're now seeing a much more robust conversation about skills-based education, skills-based hiring, and skills-based alignment so that higher education and employers are finally starting to find a common language. Sometimes the competency-based education movement has been part of this, certainly. But if you think about it, ferocious pace of job change in our workforce means that the slow-moving process of curriculum committees never keep up. So we know that even if you don't change your job, your job will change out from under you every three to five years. So if you go to a major conference like ASU GSV Summit every year, the major hot topic, most of the conversation for the last three years or more has been on the intersection of higher education and workforce. 
And a lot of the opportunity has been at that intersection, right? Companies like Trilogy who say, hey, look, go ahead and give that four-year undergraduate liberal arts education, but then let us layer on six months of coding boot camps and analytics and help your graduates get meaningful jobs that pay well. So there's a lot of activity in the intersection between those two worlds. We just did a study, a large national survey of 900 people who have been recently unemployed, and it was broadly representative. So not only geographically, but these were people without high school degrees, people with high school degrees, credits, no degree, associates, and bachelors. And the number one priority for them was skills to get me back to work. Skills, skills, skills. They didn't talk about programs, they didn't talk about majors, they didn't talk about areas of interest. What are the set of skills that get me back in the workforce? Interestingly, 64% of them don't want to go back into the same industries that they came out of. If you think about it, which were they? They were travel tourism and they were retail. Like, nope, I'm done. I'm out of those. I'm not working in a restaurant, a hotel, an airline, or in a retail store. So they want skills. So that was the number one. And interestingly, the least highly rated item here after cost, if you remove cost, was brand. They don't really care about the provider. It's much more practical than that. The big change too, Leslie. Paul, if I could add to that, because that fascinating piece of research that we did was our assumption is everything is going to be going more online, more on demand. The brand name should do both. They all started out first with business schools and graduate degrees because it was new revenue to them. It didn't discount the quality, the importance of their on-campus experience so they could charge a lot more money. And that's where companies like TUU have done an extraordinary job. But what's fascinating here is every one of these students recognizes that they are under-equipped and every company realizes they're under-equipped, which is why there was a massive move for retraining once the employee comes into the workforce. But it is stunning when you look at 70% of all employers say that recent college graduates were underprepared for the workforce. Yeah. The last thing I'd say is that the big movement has been into, in the spirit of that skills notion, is away from full degree programs to micro-credentials named in various ways, but shorter burst learning that's very skills focused. The last bastion of surviving these institutions is employers saying you either must have a degree or they go to certain schools in which they're used to people who have a degree. Northwestern is great for marketing, Princeton's great for math, whatever it is. That is breaking down because employers want people that have these skills that can prove it. Another big step in education, particularly online education and stuff that Chegg is getting into deeply, is assessment. It's assessing what actual tangible skills you've acquired that can be applied to the demand in the workforce. And when you match those up, people get hired on one interview. You both touched a little bit on the social aspect, though, or even study abroad or that community and connectivity that comes with the sort of on-campus environment. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on, over time, how can you better integrate that into the digital world? And do you envision that we'll ever get to 100%? What is the mix that we'll see between offline and online, and how will they work together over time? What will that look like? So my own thing about this is that we will continue to see big growth in the online market for the non-traditional age student, which is a much larger part of the higher ed landscape than a lot of people appreciate. And then for the traditional student who wants to go to a campus, and as Dan rightly pointed out, maybe most of them don't go. 50% of undergraduate enrollments are in community colleges. They're not residential. They're not living on campus. But for those who do, and residential campuses dominate our mindset when we think about higher ed, I think we will see more hybrid learning because you can't digitize the coming-of-age part that I just talked about. 
the living in the dorm, it's parties, it's going to the football game. Students love that. But the problem is they can't afford it. It's a luxury to do it for four years and they're taking on too much debt. So one of the things we've been playing with is can we unpack those two things and say, this is how we'll deliver your academic experience. We'll drive down the cost of tuitions. And then we'll give you this living learning experience on campus, but it may not be for four years. That might be a bit of a luxury. And in reality, on most campuses, seniors will tell you, I'm done. Like, I'm ready. I had that thing that I really wanted. They're eager to do, as Dan said, to go into a kind of earn while I learn model. We routinely have students withdraw from the traditional campus and then re-enroll online for their senior year so they can jump into the workforce. So we're playing with models that would re-examine the academic calendar, move away from the agrarian calendar to go 12 months, four terms. You could graduate with a bachelor's in two years, and then you would recoup the opportunity cost of two years of not being in the workforce, but still have two amazing years living on campus. I think we'll see a lot more variety, Leslie. What has not changed? is the hunger of 17-year-olds to get out from under their parents' roof and have this amazing experience if they can afford it. And right now, given more months of the pandemic, the hunger of parents to get their kids out of the house and back to campus is also unabated. Even those of us who have kids that are 27 and 25 <laughs> and can't go back to campus, I'd be happy to pay for tuition again because my daughter's sitting right here. From the view, the lens that we have, you mentioned we have 3 million subscribers. We actually have 3 million subscribers in the quarter. So. We represent the single largest support educator in the country of any kind. One of the things that becomes obvious when you have the data we have, because we own the customer, we own the data, we own our own channel of distribution, and we own all of our content. It's one of the most phenomenal business models outside of Google that I've ever been associated with, because it literally just grows and gets more profitable. You don't have to create any content until the student asks the question, so there's no wasted dollars. But what is really stunning is just how much help students need because they've had almost no support growing up. By 2022, 25% of college students' English will be their second language. doesn't mean they can't speak it, but it means we have to understand who education was originally designed to serve. Somebody could take four years to study and learn for a learning sake versus what we put on it today, which is it's the path to the middle class. Well, if it was the path to the middle class, the curriculum would be different. It'd be less expensive, it'd be on demand, it would recognize who is trying to serve people who don't have four years or six years to take off. And it would not have 44 million Americans having acquired $1.6 trillion in student debt. So we either need to stop lying about what it does or adjust it to who it's got to serve. The thing that Chegg has been trying to do for 10 years, and again, the reason I so admire everything Paul is doing, is because. Somebody has to put the student first. And up to this point, it hasn't been anybody. Ask your kid what the cost of an ATM is on campus. The average student takes out $10. They pay $3.50 to get $10 because that's really all they have. That's a ripoff. Everything has been to collect a toll from the student to support a school where people teach twice a week. Makes no sense anymore. There's also one uh, quick follow-up question that came in related to the concept of folks wanting to work during the educational process. What about uh, apprenticeships? Is that going to come back as something to be more widespread going forward? Yeah. If you look at the evolution, we used to think about go to college, then go to work. And then we're sort of in the period now where we say go to college, but let's integrate some work in the form of internships and other kinds of workplace learning, if you will. And we're getting better at recognizing that. But as Dan suggested earlier, the real movement, I think the most interesting development is towards a full-blown integrated earn-while-you-learn model. 
And it could be, by the way, that you get to bring all three things together. That is, I get to live on a dorm. I get to hang out with young people my age. So we're doing this with our new engineering program. But instead of classes, I'm going to go to the engineering firm where I have a workplace internship. I have my skills and competencies mapped to my internship. So I'm getting credit for that work. And by the way, classes are a complement to that real-world learning. So there's still some classes, there's still academic support, you still have to learn differential equations, but it's not the primary. So it's a real shifting in what gets emphasized and it's a real unbundling of those moving parts. So think of it this way, Leslie. Imagine if we can program different paths for what people actually want. The majority of people, even when they go to school online, it's fascinating, they choose a regional provider because they know the name and they think employers know that name. But overwhelmingly, the majority of citizens in this country don't want to move. They don't want to move to Silicon Valley. They don't want to move to high-tax states with all the challenges that go with it. And they don't want to take huge debt just to be underpaid versus what the cost of living is. So we have an opportunity now with all the technology that's available like this to be able to actually help colleges have curriculum that's relevant to not only their local communities, which is what community colleges were supposed to do originally before they got over their skis. We're doing a lot of work in that area, matching up local jobs to local curriculum and local students. But overwhelmingly, almost 90% of students don't want to move from where they grew up if they don't have to. We keep thinking, well, you can move to jobs or in Silicon Valley, go there. Not everybody can afford to do that, or it culturally feels comfortable for them to do that. But with remote working coming on, we can start building people to work anywhere. So I think there's a real opportunity for change finally. Right. I wanted to move a little on to the rationalization of the sector. And you think you referenced there are about 5,000 universities. Seems like an enormous number. As online becomes a greater part of the educational system, number one, do we need this many universities? And number two, what are they able to charge when the experience is not all in person, but maybe it's a, a mix of online and offline? So where do you see rationalization happening? And then what does the cost of education look like down the road? Well, Paul, you're addressing it head on with your freezing of prices and your new curriculum. Yeah, so all the pressure now is downward. And for the non-selective privates, it's been hidden in their discount rates. So they will continue to increase their reported tuition. But discount rates, which it used to be, if you had a 30% discount rate, if you had over 30%, you were kind of in the yellow zone. Then it was 40%, then it's 50%. There are schools out there right now with 60 and 70% discount rates. So they're giving seven cents back on every dollar of tuition. That's not sustainable over time. So colleges are hard to kill. So they can play State schools are particularly hard to kill, but not-for-profit yeah. private schools. I estimate 25% are going to go out of business. And with the state budget cuts that are likely to be happening, and they're already hitting some states very hard, it's not even clear that all the publics will exist. And it used to be thought you could never kill off a public because it was a local state legislator who would keep them alive, right? They're the economic engines and their jobs. Their jobs. But that may be really hard to do right now. So you've seen massive contraction. It'll take many forms. So at the University of Maine system, and I think the University of Alaska system, which have both had enormous cuts, some of it from budgets and some of it demographically, they're talking about consolidating their system. So we don't need a CFO on five different campuses. We need one CFO in a central office, and the campus becomes a satellite. So you're going to see this contraction, even if they're still standing. And I think for the non-selective privates, you'll see, as Dan suggested, a lot of closures coming on. And on the other hand, there isn't enough capacity in other communities. 
But across the sector, price is an enormous problem. And we'll have to see it come down. And I think part of what we'll see is kind of an unbundling. So the comprehensive fee may go by because what we're seeing, it's happening right now in the pandemic. They're like, nope, I'm not going to pay you one amount. I want to split these things off. And they're suing their schools for not giving refunds. Yeah, massive class action suits right now. If you take what Paul's saying, like if just, again, I, California, I know a lot about because it's one of the biggest school systems in the country. It's really California, Texas, Florida, those places. California created 116th community college because the first 115 apparently were not enough. It was designed to be exclusively online. It was called Calbright. The previous governor gave $100 million to build an online school and then a $20 million a year budget to operate it. And after spending over $110 million, it got 300 enrollments. The third rail of education, and I'll be the one that says it here, is tenure. We all know about tenure in the elementary schools, but professors who you can't fire, even if their curriculum is not relevant. So you can't have budget for relevant curriculum. So what happened to Calbright is they were trying to get around their system, but the professors on other campuses protested. So now they've frozen it and they want to spread the money back onto those colleges. Again, you got a lot of people in the system who are focused on everything but the student, the curriculum, the learning, the cost, and the outcome. It's why Chegg exists. One of you had mentioned, or maybe both of you, that come the fall, you are not expecting to see universities reopen. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that in person. We have a couple of questions from the line about come September, do you think nationwide freshman class enrollment is going to be down 10%, 20%, 30%? What's going to determine which schools are going to potentially reopen or not reopen? Is a percent international mix? How much they have in endowments? But if you could just talk a little bit about what your expectation is in looking at specifically the fall and what happens to universities at that point in person. We track as much of this as we can, obviously, because we have to plan our business around it. First of all, people may not understand that 10% of all students are international students, but they represent 15% of all the revenue, if not more. Those 10% are not coming back in person. Every school is scrambling to keep them online at the same amount of pay. Whether they're successful or not, doesn't know, but that's going to make an enormous economic impact. People don't understand that 50% of college presidents will tell you today that their economics were shaky before this. This is how fragile, as Paul put it, I think in his opening remarks, the system is. 20% of college freshmen say they'd rather take at least a gap semester, if not a gap year, because there's no place to travel and there's no jobs to have. What they're doing is they're taking online classes. As an example, it might cost $3,500 for credit to go to the school, but $650 for a transferable credit online. If their schools are offering it online, a lot of freshmen will take it because a lot of them on the residential schools, it's getting on an airplane, it's living in a dorm with somebody you don't know, that growing up experience that Paul talks about won't even be available because they're going to block all that stuff on the campus. But every campus will make a major attempt to open up. The issue is going to be what happens after they do. I think Paul was the one who said, it's like, you can write every rule, you can follow every safety tip. But then what are you going to do with a student on campus who doesn't want to follow? It takes one student to ruin the entire campus, potentially. So you're going to have that issue, which is a really big, it's going to be a legal issue, it's going to be a reputation issue. But right now, economics are winning out. So every school will open. Many of them are opening earlier in August and are closing on Thanksgiving until the end of January. That seems to be the momentum plan for people. 
Paul, would you say that's right? Yeah, and I think right now, the early test of this are the football programs. So the big D1 football programs are coming back for preseason, and they're kind of using them as test cases or laboratories for all the things that I hope to be able to do with students. The initial results are not positive. That is, they're seeing infection rate spike within the programs, positive reports. If you saw the study out of Fort Bragg, it's not encouraging. So here are recruits. They have absolute control. They brought in a large group. Two of them tested positive. They quarantined them. And you saw these were the two. They're, they're out of the mix. And within 10 days, it was, I don't know, a couple, you know, 25, 30, 40. And all of a sudden, the whole group now has to be quarantined. Same thing's happening in the NFL right now. They announced it today that all of a sudden, nobody has it. They get tested every week. Then one person has it. Then the entire team gets it. Yeah. Now, fortunately, at this age, at the age of a residential campus, so far, it's not risk of death the way it is for older people like myself. The reputations of these schools for economic reasons are at giant, giant risk. You take upstate New York, three schools in Ithaca, New York, Cornell, Ithaca, and Cuca College. Cuca College says if they don't open in person, they'll never open again. Cornell has a $7 billion endowment. They can wait it out for several semesters. Ithaca needs to make sure that it gets all of the tuition, but needs the money or it's going to go into deficit spending greater than they have. This is what we're really dealing with. It's economics, not education. And Leslie, if people, if your listeners haven't heard it, today's daily podcast from the New York Times is the most sobering and I think spot on report of what the fall looks like. It doesn't suggest that schools will stay open for very long. Thanks for that. One other question before we get into just a few other challenges I wanted to bring up, but there are different parts of the educational ecosystem, whether that's the broad-based learning platforms, study tools, test prep, career development. What areas do you think are most attractive as part of that value chain from an investment perspective? And as you think about continuing to involve your respective businesses and efforts, where are you going to incrementally be focused and how's that going to evolve? I think we should break it out differently here, which is I'd love to hear from Paul, and we talk about it at our board meetings. What is it that institutions need from external providers that can improve the institutions who are trying to deal with increased online? For CHEG, everything goes direct to the student. We've just said we're not going into the institutional business. I can tell you that based on what we see, which is 20 million visitors a month, as an example, and now we're exploding globally. There's some consistency, which is people want to learn things that make them employable. And I don't mean just job skills. They're moving more towards majors they think they can get a job for that will pay them more than the cost of the education. There has been a dramatic shift to that. The second thing is we're going to see an increased lifelong learning and not lifelong learning to learn how to golf or to knit or other things. People will do that also. But this is a matter, Paul mentioned it earlier. The change in what technology does in the workforce means that you go from being relevant to irrelevant in as little as three years. There was a point where everybody said you need to learn to code. Now it looks like the machines are going to replace the coders. There's going to be a lifelong relationship that companies like Chegg want to have with people about filling in their major obstacles all along the way, being on demand. I think everything needs to be on demand, online, more affordable use technology and data to make it more personalized, more adaptive. Some people don't even know what to ask. And it needs to be multimodality. The fact that we still do a lecture format, the lecture format was invented over 200 years ago because each classroom had one book. And so somebody would stand up in front of the classroom and read the book. 
The fact that that hasn't evolved today is shocking. It's absolutely stunning. I think you're going to have to be multilingual and multimodality, and it's going to have to meet the student where they are, and then it's going to have to assess you every step of the way to show not only the professor, but the student themselves, whether or not what they're spending time and money on is making them progress or not. And I think there's going to have to be skin in the game from all the players, not just the student. That's what I see coming. Well, then I get calls from colleagues who are asking, hey, we're faced with a sudden, going to move everything online. How do we think about this? 80% of their questions or more are about how to move their academic program online. So they're very obsessed with this thing about their academic program. And one of the things I say to them is, you'll actually win or lose this game on everything else. So let me give you one example. Before the pandemic, we had the uh, highest rates of mental health issues, anxiety and depression that we'd ever seen in the American college-going body. And now we just added a pandemic, a recession, and civil unrest to their list. So the need for thinking about mental health supports in an online learning environment when students can't go back is going to be enormous. The kind of work that Chegg does is a reason why so many millions of students are finding Chegg, because they're not getting that kind of easy access to expert help and support in their own campuses. And these were students who were on their campuses with writing centers and learning centers, and they were doing that. What happens now is they go digital. So you can think about all of those sort of pieces of the ecosystem are opportunities that I think the schools don't even necessarily know what they don't know. When we talk about data analytics, we have 75 people on our analytics team. When I have a colleague's visit, I had one from a very elite university turn to his provost and president and say, how come I can't get answers to these questions? These guys are asking and answering questions I don't get answers to. I don't even ask them because they're just not built, right? They don't have the systems. And it's not the high ideals of what should be in our curriculum. It's the nuts and bolts of your business processes. It's your underlying systems. It's your CRM. It's your analytics. All of this stuff, the real opportunities there. So, Paul, it's fair to say, you know, Leslie, we talked about there being 5,000 schools. Think of them as 5,000 small businesses. Yeah. They're not even systems. They can claim to be systems, but for example, those 115 schools in California, just community colleges, they get to work independently of each other. There's no centralized anything. So when you're thinking about 5,000 small businesses that you have to sell into, what problems are you solving for them that they have? They need to lower their costs. They need to improve their graduation rates. And not because of the goodness of their heart. You look at the economics of what it costs to lose a sophomore or a junior or a senior. That's like an airline that goes with a seat empty. If you can't fill it with transfer students, then that means your prices have to go up to the rest of the students because the economics get terrible. And with such high college dropout rates, the model is, has not been sustainable, is not sustainable. And so analytics about, are students actually learning? What's going to cause them to drop out? We have data. I can tell you by every school in the country, every textbook in the country, every professor in the country, what book students are on, what chapter they're on, which questions they struggle with. I can show you the difference between Texas A&M and University of Texas Austin for the same book because we have all of those analytics, billions and billions and billions of pieces of data over the last six years, and nobody asks for it. The publishers have never asked for it. We've offered to the publishers and said, you realize nobody uses chapter 39 of your book ever. Why do you charge people for it? We can disaggregate an entire textbook and just give the kids the parts that the professor's using. Instead, they got to buy the full book. 
it's so much opportunity. The question is, will schools be moved by the economics now for the first time because the game is over? Right. What about the regulatory backdrop here as another gating factor for the industry, you know, moving to the digital world? I know, Paul, you've talked about this a bit. Perhaps you could give a couple perspectives on, on how you see that developing and with the upcoming election as well. How would you think about the various outcomes of being more beneficial or more of a headwind for the sector? Yeah. And it's the reason why, if you think about what happened in the music industry or journalism, those industries were disrupted seemingly overnight, but we're a regulated industry with third-party payer, which is the federal government, right? So $155 billion of federal financial aid every year. We're not going to change so quickly. We're more like healthcare. It's much more difficult. And the regulatory environment for us is sometimes referred to as the triad. So federal financial aid, your local state regulatory framework, and then your creditor. So all of those things really constrain the ability to make very sudden shifts. That said, the folks at the Institute for the Future often say in moments like this, things that have long been stuck get unstuck. So I think depending on if we see a change in administration and the Trump administration leaves the White House, a lot of things become possible that I would have been a little skeptical. I think free college gets a lot more traction. So it was getting traction during the primary in a general way, but no one believed it was possible. A lot of things that felt impossible six months ago seem a little bit more possible. I still don't think we would see free college but you may see a whole lot of regulatory change around costs, cost controls, what gets paid for, pay for performance, a real different focus on outcomes and competencies. Remind you that every time the nation has gone through a catastrophe like this, we've reinvented our higher ed system. So out of the That's ashes right. of the Civil War came the Morrell Act, the creation of the flagships. Out of the Depression War II came the GI Bill and the democratization of higher ed and a whole wave of new schools. No one knows today what will come out of this, but it doesn't feel like we can go back. And I think depending on what happens in the regulatory environment, there are likely winners and losers here. There's going to be a very strong consumer protection energy with a Democratic administration. So Senator Murray and her staff are very strong on this. You're going to see skepticism of the OPM industry. Elizabeth Warren has already put a shot across their bow. So I think that industry will get more scrutiny. There'll be just a range of interesting sort of opportunities and constraints. Things will get harder. Things will get easier. But I think generally speaking, the big bet right now and a big opportunity will be if we see Pell Grants for shorter term learning. Right now, that's the battle that's going on quietly on the Hill around reauthorizations. And if you take a look, the number of degrees conferred in America has remained flat for a while, but the number of micro-credentials and certifications has skyrocketed. If that's where the opportunity lies, if that's where the market demand is, will the feds pay for it? That's the interesting thing, which is hmm? schools suck up to who pays them. And since 90% of all college loans come from the federal government, they'll do whatever the federal government says because there's no funding for them because it's not like they get a direct amount of money. It's the students can't go unless the government pays for them. The question is, what are the incentive systems that are built? Today, there's no incentive system to have a student graduate. The same complaints that were made about the for-profit colleges, it was just milking money from the federal government for low graduation rates and low employment rates. The same thing can be said for over half the schools in our country. Our biggest state schools, if they're lucky, have 50% graduation rates, and that's over six years, and their tuition's even higher. It's just paid for by the federal government. Whatever comes in, the current administration sort of blocked McGraw-Hill and Sengage from that merger. Elizabeth Warren is obsessed with companies like 2U, who are creating new economic systems for the colleges, but the colleges are keeping less of it, and they're charging the students too much. But the market is going to create the following. The market is going to force prices down for the first time in 50 years, maybe longer. 
you're going to see schools desperate for any enrollment dollars they can, and they're going to be lowering their prices and not even the discount rates. The online schools are going to start lowering their prices because the community college systems, they're already lowering their prices. I'm fortunate in that it's all good business for Chegg because the more people that need help, the better we get. But I'd really like to see the system align around. I also think you're going to see more and more companies and corporations, particularly with remote employment, starting to look at colleges they never said before and either working with them to set up curriculum or setting up their own remote online curriculum. Amazon does it today. You could do it right now with Amazon, which is you can take their Amazon ad, which Chegg offers, and if you pass it, you move to the front of the line on an interview, you take one interview, and if you pass the interview, you're hired. That's what's starting to happen. I did want to try to squeeze in an audience question that came in, and it happens to be, Dan, with one of your longtime friends and former colleagues, Sue Decker. Sue, Greatest hello, CFO Sue. taught me the meaning hello. of free cash flow. Hello, Sue Decker. Hey, Dan. I just wanted to see your Springsteen concert posters on your back. It's the one room I'm allowed to decorate. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. My little startup is selling to universities, and one of the things you said at the outset reminded me of what I heard from one of the administrators, which is that online learning used to be like online dating. It was considered kind of gross and now it's become mainstream. So we all have to adapt. So I thought that was kind of funny. Yep. That's what the living and learning residential colleges are thinking. For both of you, and I'm curious about is we find in our travels that the international schools are much more oriented toward getting the ticket, getting the degree, much less focused on, not everywhere, but certainly in Asia and certain areas, focused on the living learning piece. Here in the U.S., we're seeing all these schools starting with the idea of a hybrid model where they recreate the living and learning, the coming of age part of it, but are going to be offering a lot of large lecture classes online while students live in the campuses. I guess my question is, do you think that converges globally? Do you think the international schools become more focused on providing a residential experience as a way to compete or not? And in the U.S., do you see that residential experience becoming less a part of the total or some sort of hybrid that makes it happen? That's a typical Sue Decker question, which means it's great. It hits right to the point, and I'm clueless on most of the answer, but I'm going to try to make it up. What's interesting is in most of the places internationally, they teach to the test. So you have to pass the test to get into ITT in India. In Brazil and in most of Latin America, very small percentage of students go on to truly higher education. And even in the younger grades, they go half a day. International students, though, Chinese students, it's who's bidding for the Chinese students. And unfortunately, this country has basically said, if you're an immigrant, you're not welcome. And that's hurting a lot of higher education, as well as the workforce. I don't think that schools outside the U.S., though, mostly because of COVID, even if they were thinking of doing that, Sue, are doing anything other than trying to figure out how to support their students. Because we were getting bigger outside the U.S., but literally on March 15th, our outside the U.S. business changed dramatically. And it's because most of the school is free and it's very selective and they got a lot of support on campus. And when they had to leave campus, same as the U.S., they suddenly discovered online. But there aren't that many schools in a lot of these countries. U.S. is just so unique. Paul, I don't know if you see it differently. No, I, I agree with you. I think so. I'm, I'm a little curious because our experience with international has been that there is a great demand for the opportunity to be in the U.S. And it's, I don't know if it's so much the campus experience necessarily, but it's the opportunity to study here Prestige. and then the brand. So super brand conscious market. When we've tried to do online internationally, for example, China 10 years ago, 
that was so disregarded that there was really just no market for it. Now that's changing. Online is really taking off in China, as you know. And as Dan suggested a moment ago, because of the pandemic, there's all of a sudden very rapid growth. University of Arizona, for example, just announced a big partnership in India, which has finally deregulated such that outsiders can finally get in and compete. We have a new business that we've launched in Latin America. Those numbers are shooting up all of a sudden. I think it's the same dynamic as we're seeing here, which is it's not consumption is your option. But in terms of your question, if I understand, is about international students coming to the U.S., when that opens up again. No, competing with the residential experience in their own oh, countries. Oh, in their own countries. In Singapore and elsewhere, there's not much of a residential experience. No, that's right. And I guess my question is, do you see that increasing as a way to compete for students? Or do you see the U.S. moving more in the other direction, which is de-emphasizing the residential experience because of the cost? I think it's the latter, Sue. And it's not just the cost, it's who the student is, as we were talking about earlier. They're just not yours and my kids. They're older, they have children, they have jobs, they have $400 in the bank. They don't even want a residential experience, even if they thought, wouldn't this be great? They just want to move up the economic ladder. Outside the U.S., their cultures are so uniquely different about what education is supposed to do, that getting away from home and living someplace for four years, only prestige was going to the U.S. Now it's actually helping Canada, because it's still going in North America, The U.S. isn't accepting them, and then COVID makes it even harder to get in the country for obvious reasons. So my prediction is the U.S. will go more towards the model of other countries than those countries trying to compete with the U.S. I wholly agree with Dan on the non-traditional student. I don't see any less hunger among 17-year-olds coming out of high school to go off to a campus. But I think will change will be the cost structure and how they consume their academics. Some version of the coming-of-age experience, maybe not four years. We might decide that that's too much of a luxury. I think we'll see both. But I don't think we're going to go to a European model in which that's largely irrelevant. Thank you. Thanks, Sue. Good to see you. We are approaching the end of our time. So I thought the last question, more of a lightning round type of question. The online education industry, in terms of penetrating the broader educational market, I've seen stats that it's somewhere south of 3% penetrated. So five years' time, Where do you think that 3% goes? Just a number from each of you would be great. No one's going to hold it to you. Just gut feeling. Online universities only or percentage of students taking some of their curriculum online? Percentage of the overall education market revenue altogether. So how much will digital represent of the total pie from under 3% today? Where does that go in five years? Paul? You're more expert projecting, but I think... It's totally reasonable to think that we'll see within five years, 20% or better. I agree. So that's not all of a sudden empty campuses. It just means that you're going to see this hybridization across the industry. And while it may be online is 3%, it's going to be a higher number than that for total number of students enrolled. And if you ask what percentage of students are taking at least some online, that's already 80%. How many universities offer some online? That's closer to 100% at this point not the mainstay of their program. So I think it's happening. I think it gets as big, if not bigger than what Paul said, but for two reasons. One, I think it's more affordable and allows people to work. You have to understand, even if you go to a community college, take a single course, you've lost a whole half a day. Hour and a half commute on average each way, 50 minute class or an hour class, that's a half a day away from the ability to earn an income. Whereas if you could do it online, you can pick up that whole half a day again and lose just an hour. 
particularly if they're on demand and not scheduled times, which a lot of us going to. The second thing is I think you're going to see a redefinition, and I know Southern New Hampshire is already working on it, which is non-degree-based courses, which is you're going to see a massive inflection of skills-based courses that are taken from current students, students that left the academic space and are coming back in, and even employees that are paying for it on their own. I think you can see that in things like what Udemy announced, which I think they said the numbers are up 400%. We're going to move more and more towards people taking their lives into their own hands. That's the company we've been building for 10 years. So as Paul said, almost 100% of people are doing something online already. It's an economic issue. And I think you're going to see just dramatic increase in online from schools like Southern New Hampshire or Arizona State University or community colleges. Those are going to be the big winners. And we'll just coast along with them. Thank goodness. Thank you both for joining us, Aria. I, I think you, you probably have a couple of closing comments here. Yeah, this is excellent. Thank you, Leslie, for moderating it. And Dan and Paul, you've been incredible. And, and also congratulations on the company that you've built. One of the high-flying stocks during this pandemic period has been Chag. And you've been building it for a long time. Dan, I remember you told me a long time ago, watch this space. And it keeps getting more and more interesting and certainly a big focus for all of us. Maybe I could just end by Dr. LeBlanc. Maybe you could share with everybody the book recommendation you gave with me because I thought it was, it was a good parting gift from someone in your stature. Yeah, well, I'm embarrassed because there'll be people on here who are much smarter than I who will say, what kind of person are you you haven't read about? Memoirs of Hadrian, which some people who I respect greatly would put in the sort of pantheon of great mid-century novels. It's an astounding book in terms of smarts, the structure, the style, the philosophy. You have to plow through the first chapter a little bit, but once you get in, you won't put it down. Well, thank you very much for that. We'll get right to reading it or listening to it. By the way, I was going to say the same thing, Ari, sure. but I don't know what the hell you just said. <laughs> <laughs> sure, exactly. Well, thanks, everyone. Have a great uh, rest of their day and rest of the uh, pandemic period. And good luck to everyone as we move forward to the extraordinary. Thank you guys very much. Thank you. And thank you, Leslie. That was great. Paul, see you on the board. Bye, Ari. Thanks. Bye. thanks. Bye, Paul. Bye, Paul. Thank you, Leslie. Take care. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, find us and subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review as well as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on social media at KindredCast for behind the scenes photos and info. Listen to Kindred Cast on Sirius XM every Saturday and Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern on Business Radio Channel 132 or stream shows on demand in the Sirius XM app. Audiation.